from the other events in our lives that they completely shape how we understand who we've become. They shape how we even share our story with other people, our kind of narrative that we hold of our life, of our past, present, and where our life is going. These events become major markers and have explanatory power. So for some people that might be the birth of a child, but for another person that could be a struggle with barrenness. For someone it might be a challenging season of life where they are battling through a, an illness or a disease. It could be the experience of a tragedy, it could be getting married. It could be the decision to become a Christian. An event that captures some kind of relational fallout within the family or friendship. Maybe it's achieving a goal, a professional goal or a personal goal. And these are events that are so wedded to your identity as a person that if people in your life don't know about those events or have a very cursory understanding of them, they are forever blocked from really understanding who you are. And they're forever inhibited from understanding the major contours of the script and the story out of which you live. And so getting to know other people is often an exercise in learning to build enough trust to share those three to six stories that radically shape our understanding of who we are and what our life is all about. And similarly, if, if you pull back from an individual level and look at groups of people, societies, nations, cultures, there are events which affect all of those people in a way sorry, to such a degree that you can't understand that people group or that culture unless you have a good understanding of this event or that event. So, for example, you cannot understand um, much within Protestant Christianity unless you understand the Protestant Reformation. If you don't have a basic working knowledge of the Protestant Reformation, there's going to be a lot about how we practice faith and what we, why we say certain things, why we do certain things, why we have certain priorities that will just not make sense to you. If you do not have a working knowledge of the events leading up to and including World War I and World War II, there will be much about our society, about our Western culture, about our value system that will just be lost to you. If you don't understand the events leading up to the institution of residential schooling within Canada, you will not be able to properly understand uh, the life of the indigenous Canadians who make up our land. If you, you know, fast forward, maybe even only 20 years from now, 25 maybe, and it will be impossible to explain the kind of change and the kind of world that we live in without saying, without being able to cycle back and saying the invention of the internet and the, and the way that that has revolutionized global communications, which therefore led to these changes being able to be accelerated, you know, you're not going to be able to understand the world as it is without understanding some of these tectonic events. And until recently, you, you even had, I, I wouldn't even just say Western culture, but it was kind of the presumed default of the global measurement of history and time was localized around one particular event. You couldn't talk about anything in history without making reference to BC or AD, before Christ 
or AD, Anno Dominus, in the year of our Lord. There was a, a soft uh, kind of surrender to this idea that the light, the birth of Jesus represented such a magnitude of such an event, we have to reframe how we think about history. And not just for a particular people group, but for everybody. And even though that's been softened a bit because we don't want that to come across as privileging, let's say, uh, Christian Western subculture, so it's been changed to common era and before the common era, the timeline is still localized on Jesus' birth. There's still a recognition that who that person was and that event that we would call the incarnation was uh, an event that you cannot understand how, you know, if aliens were to come, you wouldn't be able to understand how we keep that time without talking about the birth of Jesus. Now, if you open up your Bible and scan through it, you're going to find lots of events. This happens, that happens, but not all events are treated equally in terms of the identity formation of God's people, nor are they treated as equal as it relates to revealing who God is, the, the, the nature of his character, and his heart, the heart of his mission in the world. So if we were to come up with kind of like a top five list of like the, the, the most significant events in the Old Testament, what would be a few that, um, and you might not even say the top five, but just events that you're kind of like, oh, like, I think these are pretty important. So I'll get the ball rolling. I might say David and Goliath. That's an, event, that's an event that is probably pretty well known within our culture, although people might not know the details. But that's a big event. People talk about that a lot. It seems to uh, uh, have a certain repercussion within the biblical story. What would be another event that in the Old Testament that you might say, hey, this might be top five, maybe top ten? Just call them out as they come to mind. Oh, yeah, okay. So creation in the garden, eating that apple, that event that, that traditionally understood as the fall, Adam and Eve rebelling. Sorry, what was the other one? God's people coming out of Egypt, Exodus. What would be another one? Giving of the law, establishing the Ten Commandments and giving of the law. Flood, yeah, absolutely. Ark would be a huge one. Any others? Passover. So within this massive body of literature of just the Old Testament, you have all these events, but within the imagination, the worldview of a first century Jew, there is one event that is, even if you were making a top five list, the gap between one and two to, f- to five would be so enormous they would want to frame it like we're really talking about the event and then the top five because it's not fair. It's kind of like when the New York Times publishes the bestseller list. The Bible is always number one, but they dropped it, I think, in the 70s because it's so far ahead of number two. They just thought it's redundant to publish it, so they just don't publish it. So the New York Times number one bestseller is always and forever has been number two to Scripture, but they just drop it because it's just a given, even though a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't know that today. So there's one event, there's one defining event that within the Old Testament is the event from which the Jewish people say, this event most clearly helps me to understand who I am, who God is, how I'm supposed to live in the world. And that event is the Exodus. It is the Exodus event where God rescues his people from Egypt and gets them out of Egypt into the wilderness, ultimately into a new land and a new life. Now, we don't have time this morning to read through the Exodus, so Greg's going to queue up a little video. 
If you are unfamiliar with this story, um, this is gonna at least give you the basic contours, although probably there'll be elements of the story that are fairly familiar to you. Oh, there we go. Are we starting it? I hear a voice. The event that becomes the pillar of the Israelite worldview. So year over year, what happens within this community in response to God's commands, generation after generation, for hundreds of years, the Passover festival or feast is celebrated to remember and to commemorate and to celebrate and to give thanks for this decisive act of deliverance by God in history. And the rest of the Old Testament, I mean, you know, the Exodus happens pretty early on in the biblical story, right? It's a second book of the Bible, Exodus. And the rest of the Old Testament is really a response to all that happens as a result of the Exodus. So even when you're reading other events in the Old Testament, it's always helpful to frame them within the context of the Exodus. You know, 150 years after the Exodus, this happened. 400 years after the Exodus, this happened. Because that's the way a Jewish person would have thought about it. And even, you know, the Passover feast, there's actually seven feasts that God says, I want you to remember seven uh, events or themes of my redemption over the course of the year. And he gives his people seven feasts, one of which is the Passover, but all of the other feasts are 
celebrating things that came as a result of the Passover. So even within the feast, the Passover is kind of the apex. It's the foundation. You can't understand even the other feasts without understanding the Passover feast and the Exodus event which it points to. And the reason why I'm going through all this is I'm trying as best as I can to help you appreciate just how um, dense with meaning and significance for a first century Jewish person the Exodus event was and the Passover celebration was as a result. If you're like me, uh, you've probably already celebrated Thanksgiving a few weeks ago. You know you have Christmas coming up, and then you have Easter. There, there's some meals that we know what culturally for us just carry a little bit more significance. But they tend to not be like that much more significant. Maybe certain birthdays do, a 40th or 50th or 100th birthday celebration. But even those that are significant, they tend to only be significant for a small pool of people who know that person or who are celebrating together. But the Passover meal was sort of like the biggest, most expansive nationwide celebration that you could think of. It would be kind of a Canada day, but like over a series of days, and it was just a huge amount of time investment. People would travel from all over. It was just a huge family reunion get-together celebrating, and it mixed not just feasting and celebrating, but reviewing the Exodus story, talking about it, sharing about it, celebrating it. It was a strange mixture of both a religious service and a community celebration. So although we have dinners that mark certain events in our lives as important, all of those would have paled in comparison to celebrating the Passover. And with every month moving towards the Passover, and with every week, and with every day, there was just increasing anticipation to celebrate it, especially for a first century Jew. Because in celebrating the Passover and remembering the Exodus, the most important event in the Old Testament, what God's people are remembering is that Passover is about hope, real, genuine hope. Because God is a God who rescues people from slavery and oppression into new life. Passover is about hope because God has revealed himself to be a God who rescues from enslavement and tyranny. And if you are a first century Jew, that is very, very good news to hear because the tyrant is Rome and you as a nation of Israel are under the foot of Rome and you are oppressed because of Rome and Rome is the big bully and you don't want it to be that way. You want to live and flourish under God's reign, not the reign of Caesar. And so with every Passover, every year in the first century, the question on everybody's mind is, is this going to be the year? Is this going to be the year when Messiah comes and he's going to rescue his people? This great coming one, this anointed one, the Messiah, who's going to usher in a revolution that's going to overthrow our enemies and God once again is going to deliver us from our present Egypt, our present rulers, our present enslavement under Rome and he's going to rescue us. We're waiting for... The sequel, Exodus part two, a new Exodus. That's what we want, God. Is this going to be the year? So people come from all over. They come into Jerusalem. The city swells by some measures 10 times its size, maybe more reasonable, reasonable accounts, four to six times its size. Houses are packed. Alleyways are packed. Jewish people filled with anticipation. 
wanting God to do something new and amazing. And this happens every single year that Jesus grows up. Every single year, all the 12 who are with him, this is the script that plays out every single Passover. And so imagine being one of those 12 going into a room Jesus says, we're going to prepare Passover. Here are some details. Get some things in order. Okay, I walk into the room. It's all set up. Here we go. I know this script. I've done it since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I could probably lead it, but Jesus is leading it. And Jesus, very likely, I would argue, leads them through the Exodus story. doesn't say that in Mark. Mark is sparse with details. Almost every commentator, though, that I read says the reason why Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus recited the Exodus story is that it's a given. It's a given. You, you, you would never celebrate the Passover without remembering. That's the whole theme of Deuteronomy. Remember the Lord. Remember your story. This next generation is going into the promised land. Remember what God did in Egypt. Remember that you were foreigners. Remember that you were enslaved. Um, remember this is your story. So Jesus, I do believe, would have moved them through in their imaginations. You're sitting there. You're reclining. There's elements of the Passover. You're being led in your imagination through the story not just as dead history, but as like, this is the story that you're a part of as God's people. And then Jesus comes to the elements of the Passover. And he focuses on two, bread and wine. Now, in a Passover supper, the bread represents having to eat in haste, having to eat quick, quickly. It's unleavened bread. God said you have to prepare bread unleavened because you're going to be getting out of Egypt really quick. You're not going to have time to kind of feast and relax and enjoy your deliverance. You're going to have to eat it on the way. So you prepare bread so that you can leave in haste. That's a major marker of fleeing from slavery and oppression. And then the wine becomes kind of a dual symbol, both for the judgment of God on the Egyptians, turning the Nile to blood, out of retribution for the Egyptians throwing the Israelite babies into the Nile River. But obviously, it's probably more poignant symbolism is the, the red wine symbolizes the blood of the lamb that was smeared over the door. And so as part of the Passover feast, we're following the script. I get it. This is awesome. It's, it's a heightened Passover. Jesus is here. This is awesome. Some people think he's going to be the Messiah. Maybe not. He seems to be talking about his death, which that doesn't really make any sense. We'll, we'll kind of chalk that up to just kind of some weird mystic symbolism. But anyways, we're excited that Jesus is here. We're moving towards Passover. Jesus is leading them through what we would call a Seder supper or a reflection on the Exodus event remembered through the Passover meal. And then he holds up the bread and he breaks it and he says, take it because this is my body. And then he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he offers it to all of, it, all of them and they drink it. And then he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. I don't know if there's um, a parallel that gives us a window into how shocking that would be to have Jesus say those things. to take these dominant symbols that everybody knows what they mean and Jesus redefines them and doesn't just redefine them in a um, kind of a subversive religious way, there's an element to that too, but he's actually, he's self-centering them. These symbols which you equated with God coming in power to deliver you are now to be understood to be about me. I am the center of the Exodus story. 
Now, you talk to anybody who has strong um, Jewish heritage, and they will tell you that is, you know, not bordering on heretical. I mean, that is inappropriate to say the least, heretical to say the, the worst. You know, there's a lot of people who will say things like, I've read the Bible, or they think they've read the Bible, or they've heard through the internet, you know, Jesus never said, I am God. Like, he never said those words. That's why I think he's a great teacher, and he taught a lot of good morals, and certainly some kind of a guru, enlightened, uh, elevated sense of consciousness. But I, I, Jesus never said he was God. From this passage alone, though, given the context of what I've just said, can you see how um, superficial that understanding of what Jesus is doing is? When you take the dominant story of Israel, the people who wrestle with God, God's people, and then reframe it all around yourself, you are either a megalomaniac or you somehow have the authority to reframe the entire story around you. And in so doing, the story doesn't just find new meaning, it finds its truest meaning. And that's what Jesus is saying. But that is a bomb that gets dropped, right? And again, if we show up to, like we will next week, show up to the Lord's Supper, communion, and our understanding of the event simply starts with Mark 12, this is something that Jesus did during the Passover and he gave bread and wine, and like that's good because Jesus told us to remember him and it points to the cross, and it totally does. But if we don't understand that, that, the, that the backstory and the event, that that event is built on top of, it'll be very easy to make that just a kind of a, a different kind of weird but over, the, over time meaningful religious kind of observance or ritual. When you understand the event that it's pointing to and how Jesus is redefining it, it makes your engagement with it very, very different. Jesus is leading them through the Passover meal. He's leading them through the story and then the turn at the end of the story is this whole story has been about me. This massive event has actually been a foreshadowing to what is about to happen. Not just in a generic way that God's going to do something. God's going to do something in my body. My body and blood is going to signal and going to usher in some kind of new exodus, new deliverance, new rescue that is so monumental in nature, the big event that formally defined the people of God, that will get superseded by what is about to happen. There's a new event number one in town. And here is the key as it relates to all of the Old Testament, certainly the Exodus. The only way to understand the entire Old Testament story, all of its themes, all of the events, the, the, the highlights, the lowlights, the, the weird ones, all of them is to understand them in light of who Jesus is. In Jesus, they find their fulfillment. They go here, they make sense. They're all, they were all pointing to and leading into Jesus. And if you try and understand them as standalone kind of Aesop's fable stories, you'll get a few levels down in terms of meaning and depth, but you'll stay there forever. When you understand them in light of what Jesus does at the cross and in the resurrection, they become mind-blowing and amazing. And they become tools for discipleship and growth beyond just basic moral lessons of stand up to the giants in your life or um, whatever else might be out there. And here's something that I'll talk about next week because this is kind of a part one of at least two, maybe three weeks on this passage. But I want to plant this seed now. In the same way that the only way to understand the Old Testament story is to rediscover them in light of who Jesus is, 
the only way to understand your story is to rediscover them in light of who Jesus is. All those events in your life, all the highs and the lows, all the weird ones, but the formative ones, those three to six that pop out at you, so that made me who I am. Those are being used by God to shape who you are, and they're actually being used to move you towards Jesus. And a lot of people spend their whole life trying to figure out what those events mean, why did it happen this way, why not this, why did the turn right happen instead of the turn left? And I think one of, this thing, one of the things this passage shows me is that you'll never find those answers outside of Jesus. Because in Jesus, the major earth-shattering events of our lives, it's only in Jesus do they, do they make sense and do they cohere and do they come together. And in that sense, Jesus is kind of like the skeleton key that unlocks and explains all of our stories. You know, the legend of the skeleton key, there's a key out there that could unlock any kind of lock. You know, every human story is a lock. Every human heart is a lock. But Jesus is the key that unlocks it, that makes someone say, oh, that makes sense. I see. I see where the story is going. I've been trying to manufacture my own meaning from all the stuff that has happened, and it's exhausting. And now Jesus says, no, that, that story is supposed to find its fulfillment in me. And you will chase your tail forever if you try and figure out who you are and what your life is supposed to be outside of understanding who I am and what I've done in my life, death, and resurrection. And it's not just that you understand your story inside of a relationship with Jesus, but the great biblical promise is your story can be redeemed. Your story can be redeemed. The trajectory of your story can change in an instant. That Jesus is God come in human form here to rescue us from our deficient stories and our, the wounds in our stories and the sinfulness and the cycles of brokenness and the abuse and the shame and the trauma and the frenzy and the waste and the self-centeredness and the lifelessness, the enslavement in our own Egypts serving a dark and cruel master, our own pharaohs. Jesus says, that doesn't have to be the end of your story. I'm going to redeem you. I want to take you out. I want to lead you from enslavement to new life. The defining event of my life was turning my life over to Jesus when I was in grade nine. And next week, we're going to gather here, God willing, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the good news that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus gives us a new opportunity to step out of slavery to the powers of sin and darkness and into a new kind of life, into a new kind of story where Jesus doesn't erase what has happened to us, but he takes it. And in a way that only he can, he turns it and reshapes it for his glory and the world's good and for our healing. And so we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare, and I would encourage us to maybe read through this passage a few times, reflect on the Exodus story in advance of next Sunday, not seven days away. It's a whole another loop of a week. But I'd encourage you to take time to remember this Exodus event and go into Mark a few times and prayerfully read through it. Because next week we're going to gather to remember the event of events through which we're rescued from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we're going to remember and celebrate that Jesus gave us a new meal for a new exodus. And we'll unpack a little bit more what does that mean for our everyday lives. Let's pray. 
God, the scriptures point to you. They lead us to you. And if we don't understand, if we don't understand who you are and your life and your teaching, the Old Testament doesn't make any sense. And in the same way, if we don't have a relationship with you, if we aren't seeking you, if you are not our master and teacher, then the convoluted roller coaster that is our life history, it's not going to make sense either. But I thank you that you are a God who intervenes, who steps into places of desperation and hopelessness and brings light and life. And as we go through our week this week, may we remember the Exodus story, the story of rescue and deliverance. May our imaginations be reformed to think about how new life is possible. Heather like freedom session, that video said how there can be healing through discipleship as we learn to understand how our stories are meant to be enveloped into yours, God. We love you. Lead us. Teach us. Show us the way. In Jesus' name, amen.